Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I am here for the Beyond Solitaire podcast with a very special guest, Jason Matthews. He's the designer as of, of a little-known game called Twilight Struggle, as well as 1960 Making the President, 1989 Dawn of Freedom, and very recently, Imperial Struggle. How are you doing, Jason? Thanks so much. Uh, I'm, I'm good, Elizabeth. Uh, despite the cold here in D.C., I'm okay. I am cold it is up there in D.C. right now. (laughs) (laughs) So you have mostly focused in your game design on two, I would say two major topics. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Maybe it's one. Um, You're interested in the conflict between the United States and Russia and in modeling presidential campaigns. But given the years that those are happening, maybe those all kind of come together. (laughs) So I I guess I would describe it slightly differently. The thing that I'm interested in is the nexus between um, political and military conflict and how those two things interact. And to a certain extent, um, the nexus between political conflict and all other forms of conflict. Um, I did a game uh, called Sola Fide, which was actually a a bit of a retheme of um, a game... Uh, campaign game I did campaign manager 2008 but uh, in any event that game is sort of about the nexus between religious conflict and political conflict but it's it's that um, that overlay between different forces in society and how they relate to politics that I think intrigues me the most is there something about gaming that makes exploring these topics different or more interesting than, say, just writing a book or conducting research about them? That's a, that's a really good question. And to be honest, the most influential person in my life was my grandfather when I was young. And um, he would sit and read history to me, like on his knee in some sort of idyllic uh, picture of what a grandfather is supposed to do. And um, so that's really where I learned to love history. And he wanted me desperately to be an author. Um, And it didn't, it it just did not work out that way in life. Um, But uh, designing games kind of scratches that itch for me. So I focus on historical topics primarily and, um, I don't know if I don't know if that would have made him proud, but it it uh, it at least fills that niche for me. I'm going to gamble that yes, it would have. <laughs> Not that we can verify, I guess, but I think so. Um, so, do you think that games that are historically based are also arguments for how you understand a particular historical time period? I absolutely think so. You know. Volko Runke, who uh, we're both uh, friendly with, um, has taught me a lot about the way he talks about this subject and how games are models, and therefore, inevitably, the model presents a picture of the reality of a world or a circumstance, and you can argue with the fidelity of that model to reality, 
but it is absolutely an argument for how you should view that circumstance. And, um, you know, you can see it just by comparing strategic World War II games. They have all sorts of implications and all sorts of assumptions that you can pick apart if you really want to dive into them. So I want to ask you about a more recent game. So you you tend to choose games other than Solo Fide, it sounds like, that are about more modern history. But your most recent release with Ananda Gupta is uh, Imperial Struggle, which focuses on England versus France during, what was it, the 1600s, 1700s? Yeah, it stretches from the War of Spanish Succession up until the Napoleonic Wars. Interesting. So what made you choose this particular historical time period as one that is of interest? So the weird thing about that game is, even though it's recent, we really began discussing it immediately after Twilight Struggle had kind of taken off as what our sophomore effort would be. And um, Ananda did something sort of interesting with his career. He was in public policy like I was when I met him, but he went back to school to study programming and then um, after Twilight Struggle had kind of moved over into the computer game design field. And uh, the difficulty was that when he moved over into computer game design, a number of the companies had very, very strict um, and, um, shall we say, restrictive uh, intellectual property requirements in their contract. So essentially anything that came out of Ananda's brain, even things that he did collaboratively with me, would be subject to the company's ownership rather than ours. And uh, as a result of all of that, we had to put Imperial Struggle on hold. But um, it was designed from the get-go as kind of a successor to Twilight Struggle. And the primary reason that we looked around, or the primary reason that it's a, the conflict that we chose is so much earlier, is, you know, we looked around human history for something that paralleled uh, the struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union. And the closest approximation that we could come to was England and France and that historic rivalry. Um, although you could say that it definitely stretches way back before we start the game. In Historians frequently call the period that we talk about the Second Hundred Years' War, but that implies that there was a First Hundred Years' War that we don't even cover. Interesting. So basically you find that the closest parallel to the Cold War is another pair of bitterly rivalrous colonial powers who battled it all around. Well, yes, I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are a couple of others that I think are interesting. Um, no one has really done a thorough treatment on the interrelationship between China and Japan, uh, which I think is definitely an interesting conflict, and it's also centuries old, and um, it has a number of wars in it. Uh, similarly, there is... Uh, the long struggle between Prussia and Austria, which is, you know, over the future of Germany. And that, that has um, overlay actually with the English and French conflict. But 
outside of that, you know, then you start then you start grasping around for rivalries that impacted the world in the same way. Interesting. So you and I are both interested in more diversity among gaming topics. And we actually are both, full disclosure everyone, on the board for the Zenobia Award, which is designed to bring in more game designers from marginalized groups who maybe add new and more interesting voices to our our field, our hobby. So I admit that when I saw Imperial Struggle as a game title, I was like, eh, is, is this something that's actually new? Is this something that's gonna not just be another game about colonialism that's a little gross? What is it that makes Imperial Struggle special and interesting in this context? So the thing that Ananda and I set out to do with Imperial Struggle that I think is novel and one of the things that people are reacting positively to is that the whole structure of that game is about the interrelationship between war and peace. And, you know, most war games, if you were to pick out any any particular war between England and France, you'd get a map with some victory hexes on it, and you'd have so many turns to get to the places with a star, and then the game would be over. But the truth is, the relationship between England and France and the relationship between most powers has a, a dynamic and a fluid uh, relationship that is based both on their relations during wartime, but also, perhaps much more so, their relations during peacetime. And we were trying to do something novel and unique in the sense that we wanted to show how the impacts of trade policy and mercantilism and colonial policy in, led inevitably to a long sequence of wars. And those sequence of wars also then impacted the peace. And so you get into this uh, negative spiral of human history that costs hundreds of thousands of lives and impacted the entire globe. Uh, and most war games are not aiming at that ambition. That's true. So I noticed that, so Imperial Struggle is a two-player game, which of course means that I've only read about it and looked at things about it. I'm a solo gamer. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I've noticed that it has war turns and then non-war turns. So what are the other things that you're doing in this game other than getting ready to make a war? Um, so you are, of course, trying to expand your colonial empire. And the reason that you're trying to explore your colonial empire is twofold. First of all, it has kind of a mercantilist economic model underneath where you are, um, attempting to corner markets on cod or sugarcane or, or tobacco or one of the many, um, commodities that were important, uh, during those centuries. Um, and then you're also trying to take control of key geography that will matter, certain fortresses and um, and uh, sea lanes that are important to the geostrategic balance. So you set those issues up in the wartime or on the peacetime, and you can win, actually, the game just by your dominance of peacetime activity. But then during war phases, it gives you an opportunity to claim uh, territory and destroy fortresses and 
claim markets that you would not otherwise be able to do during the piece. Uh, and, you know, that's, I guess, the, the dynamic that we're emphasizing. Interesting. And what is it that you want players of your game to come away with after they play your game? What impression of this historical time period and these powers are you hoping that they'll develop from, from playing your work? Well, I think most wargamers are very familiar with Clausewitz's uh, motto that that war is politics by other means, but this game actually demonstrates it. And you don't need little stars on the map to illustrate why a particular fortress in Canada is important. The fortress is important because of how it impacts your play. So you're creating actual reasons for strategic locations to be strategic other than that they're worth victory points or something at the end exactly nice so to pivot back to modern topics um you when you designed games like 1960 making a president Mm -hmm. or uh your more recent campaigning game about the 2008 swing states competition were you ever expecting politics in swing states to become as tense as they have become yeah i i guess um i i think it's unfortunate that um american politics has devolved at the presidential level at least into a competition of about seven or eight states. And you can see the distinction between the campaign in 1960 and the campaign in 2020. In 1960, Nixon pledged a campaign in all states, and that may have been a tactical mistake. But in point of fact, there were many, many more states that were competitive in that election or one by less than 2% than there were in 2020, which meant that the whole country was a little more purple than it is these days. Um, and because I have uh, spent most of my career in politics, it's not a revelation to me, but I do think that, yeah, that's, uh, the fact that that is the way presidential elections play out to me now um, is reflected in that game design, the more recent one. So you think that there's a large difference in the way that you modeled 1960 versus 2008 even? Exactly. A lot of people have encouraged me to update 1960 to either cover um, the 2000 election or 2016. I'm sure I'll get calls for 2020. But the truth is, uh, you can't just change the cards and the uh, electoral count numbers for the states. The Even between 1960 and 2020, the nature of presidential politics and campaigning has uh, turned 180 degrees, and you would really have to come up with a lot of new mechanisms to get something to feel like a modern campaign. What kind of mechanisms do you think that you'd have to add if we were just spitballing about it? Well, so 1960 doesn't have a role for money. And um, part of the reason was that uh, it was kind of a wash in 1960. Both campaigns had enough money and uh, you didn't have to distort your politics in the same way 
um, to go get more money or more of it. These days, um, you know, I, I think there has, even in, even in the last couple of cycles, there's been this weird evolution with small do- donors coming on board. But then you would also have to um, alter the way media works and the impact of social media and uh, the way that social media is used to go get small donors. It's, it's just a very, very different cycle. But the truth of it is, no matter how you characterize it, the role of money, the amount of money that needs to be raised and the mechanisms for going about doing so are a huge part of contemporary presidential campaigns, and they just weren't in 1960. That is interesting. And it's really funny you mentioned social media because it's so much a part of my life now that I wasn't even thinking about what a big role it plays because to me it just does, which tells you something right about the historical context (laughs) we live in. But how would you even get a game to mimic the 24-hour news cycle where an October surprise or, you know, a nasty video surfacing on Twitter would impact the proceedings? And then you have to, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. And then you have a secondary question. Is any of these, are any of these things in a presidential campaign actually a surprise? Or were they always scripted? And, you know, having done myself in a campaign context um, uh, opposition research, I know full well that uh, people are paid millions of dollars to go dig up every ounce of dirt that they can find on a presidential candidate. And it sits in a voluminous file that is there before a campaign ever starts. And then it is slowly spoon fed to media in ways that sometimes leaves them with the impression they uncovered something, even though it was planted all along, or it's turned over to friendly media sources that, you know, full well are going to blare it from the rooftops. So, uh, you know, it, it, it raises a question is, is social media just a tool of manipulation or is it an actual journalistic tool? And I don't, I can't pretend to know the answer of that. I, I'm sure the reality is somewhere in between. Oh my God. I feel like that's its own game. <laughs> also, I think it is. <laughs> if somebody wants to pay me a million dollars to go read people's old tweets and social media accounts, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, we've we've just come through a fairly traumatic period in our country, and I would not say that the trauma is over by any stretch at all. Uh, people, you you mentioned people maybe asking you to make a game about twenty twenty. Is it too soon? I uh, it definitely is too soon. Um, I do feel like it's really a much more conventional story than twenty sixteen, um, mm-hmm. in that in spite of the reaction of some of the folks on the right, I think that the electoral mechanism, you know, everyone was on high alert. And so um, everyone was already looking for interference, both from abroad and from any other potential source with, with, you know, multiple votes cast by the same uh, absentee voter or whatever, any of those things, those irregularities were being watched for. And they didn't, I'm happy to say they didn't really materialize. It didn't keep people on the right and President Trump from pretending like they did. But um, but as a source of simulation, I, I just don't really think 
it ever really occurred. And the 60 court cases on the subject are sufficient proof for me. Indeed. So I find it really interesting that you think it's too soon to model 2020, given that you released Campaign Manager 2008. BGG says that's a 2009 game. So how do you decide how long is long enough to reflect on something and make a game about it? So um, part of the thing that we were trying to do in 2008 is reflected in the title of that game, which is we were trying to give people the sense of campaign manager decisions, which isn't quite the same as saying you're the candidate. And so if you were to go through the flavor text or whatever um, of all of those cards and, and the decisions of the kinds of cards that we were making, we were trying to let people know the experience that a the campaign managers of the Obama and McCain campaign had. And to a certain extent, we could read those books that came out shortly thereafter and reflect that. Um, But uh, otherwise, I think you're best left, you're, you're best to leave the dust subtle or settle for a while and partisanship die down a little bit. A lot of people wanted us to do um, a, a, um, a Bush Gore game immediately after that election. And I just don't think that there was any way possible to do it without accusations of bias coming into play. But now I think we could take on 2000 if I could figure out what to do about the Supreme court. Ew. How would you model that in a game? Cause there's no way of knowing. Yeah, it's kind of sucky. I mean, if if nine votes are the only votes that matter, then it kind of makes the rest of the game silly. But um, sometimes I think, well, that's really the game that you should have. Why isn't there a game about the Supreme Court decision-making process for 2000? Right. And I guess, do we know enough about the Supreme You know, are, are, there, are there decisions changeable enough to make a game about it? Or do you pretty much already know what people are going to do just from knowing their dispositions and their decision histories? And I... I think that's an open question. I mean, we it wasn't like one of those cases where we had a ton of precedent where you knew that presidential, you know, appointees from this president or the other are automatically going to go this way, although when one steps back a little bit, it does seem as if um the outcome was more partisan than one would like, and therefore the outcome was predestined. Yeah, it's hard to know. Although things, other things have changed, you know. So it's it's no secret if you look at my my Twitter feed that I am very liberal. Uh, but I remember having much more negative feelings towards George W. Bush in two thousand than I even remotely do now. Time has really changed my perception of him. And of his intentions and, you know, watching him, you know, be able to be friends with Michelle Obama is so charming. I, I really do think that I would feel differently about that game now compared to how I felt in, in earlier times. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that um, I have some friends who are like George W. Bush is a war criminal and should be brought before the Hague and it doesn't matter what kind of person he is. Um, And I get it. Like, I I understand that reflex. And 
there are elements of that reflex that I even agree with. But the truth is, um, in retrospect and in the way he's conducted himself as an ex-president, it's clear that he uh, wants good for his country. And when you've been in a position to contrast that with another occupant of the office who, whose motivations seem selfish, um, it makes George W. Bush seem better in contrast. I think there's some truth to that. I also think that if we're being very, very blunt, many American presidents from any side of the aisle could be considered to have committed war crimes. I, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, it's clearly true that you could say that of um, almost all the presidents that were engaged in Vietnam. Um, and, you know, there is an unfortunate reality that in global affairs, right does make or might does make right at some level. There, there's no enforcement mechanism on a great power. I think there's some truth to that. Uh, do you think that those sorts of considerations also play out in the games that you've designed? I mean, you look at something like Twilight Struggle. You know, the United States and Russia both behaved quite questionably in a number of countries around the world. And here we are. Exactly. Or are, are we getting away with it? <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe not. Maybe there's some great Christian God who's passing judgment on us now. But um, leaving leaving aside that potentiality, I do think one of the things that we say in Twilight Struggle that would probably have been controversial while the Cold War was going on, but are in but is increasingly less controversial, is that we treat the Soviet Union and the United States exactly the same you have exactly the same options. You conduct the exact same operations, which is to say that we're two great superpowers and to a certain extent, the ideological warfare of it all was a veneer. Do you think that we're ever going to find ourselves modeling current relations between the United States and Russia? Um... Yes, I think that's definitely possible. I'm sure some wargamers are working on it now, but I I tend to look at the Russians a little bit as playing spoiler as their circumstance in the world gets worse and worse. Um, I had an interesting conversation about the subject with somebody who was in intelligence and who was like, the Russians know that they're like their hand only gets worse from here on out. Their population is going to continue to shrink. The importance of oil is going to continue to diminish. So if they can't get their best deal now, um, it's not going to get better for them. Interesting. I guess I look at things like, you know, it's uh, you know Alexei Navalny's recent arrest after the attempted poisoning. And, you know, I, I, I recently read a book called Putin's People about Russia sort of economically ingratiating itself with the West and, and, and sort of continuing old KGB interests in that way. Yeah. Do you think there's any truth to that? Oh, I think it's 100% true. I think, um, you know, that's where Putin's um, training comes from. I th I'm quite sure that the playbook, the playbook that he's operating off of is 
maybe a, a more nuanced for, or form of that old playbook, but uh, you can draw parallels and find precedent in everything that they used to do. If the world were going to have another Cold War, what powers would it be between? And what would change about it based on current national alliances that we've all made? Um, I do believe that there is um, a strong potential for a Cold War between the United States and China. And I think the Chinese have done everything that they can in the last several years to make that more rather than less likely as their uh, political structure becomes more and more authoritarian and their approach to their neighbors becomes more and more aggressive. Um, The thing that is completely different between the Cold War then and the circumstance that we'll find ourselves with in China is that when the United States and the Soviet Union were challenging one another, they were really two totally separate systems challenging each other. Their economies were, there were light engagements between Eastern and Western economies, but you basically had to pick one side or the other and your markets and your economic relations were dictated by the side that you picked. Um, for the most part, you were better off with the West, but, uh, you know, clearly countries were able to survive economically uh, inside the Eastern markets. That won't be true in the case of a Cold War with the Chinese. Our economies are incredibly integrated. Um, And so a conflict between the United States and China will very much be a fight inside a telephone booth. Uh, where no one who's involved in the fight goes away without injury. What's interesting is that that was already true for for Twilight Struggle in the sense that everything you did for your own benefit had some sort of terrible reaction (laughs) the other player could trigger. (laughs) You know, that already seemed like that was true. And maybe even more so, how would you you even model that? It's a really good question, but I think in this case... um, Nothing will be for your own benefit, like it all <laughs> everything hurts <laughs> every single thing you do hurts, but you have no choice in the matter um it'll be much more if we were to have uh, a cold war with China, it'll be much more like the circumstance in Europe in World War One where it's a catastrophe oh jeez, so are there any political or sort of modern historical conflicts that you think deserve treatment in a game that haven't gotten it yet? God, all of them. But my favorite topic, um, my favorite topic that I think is super interesting that most Americans aren't even aware is going on is the, the classic and sort of ancient conflict within the Muslim world between um, kind of the, forces of conservatism led by Saudi Arabia and the forces of radicalism led by Iran. And I I don't know to the extent that people realize that this is something that actually was an undercurrent also occurring during the Cold War when uh, under Nasser's Egypt and all of the all of the difficulty that that uh, revolution caused for Arab monarchies 
and kind of uh, Arab conservatism, but and then how all of that also plays with the Sunni Shia conflict. It's it's really fascinating, and and sometimes I think Americans uh, don't realize the extent to which we're a pawn in a game in the Middle East that we don't even realize we're playing. Yeah, when you say conservative, when you say conservatism and radicalism, do they mean the same things in this context that they would in the United States? They absolutely don't mean anything like that. But yes, yeah, yeah, it's like so. What is, so when you say those things, what, so when Iran is radical, what does that mean? I mean, it's radical. Well, it, it, it and the margins, it means the same thing. Uh, it has a revolutionary dynamic that wants to change the. Um, kind of cozy relationship that the monarchies that uh, withstood the end of colonialism have with the West. They, you know, they're looking to upturn everything about that relationship and perhaps either reestablish some form of caliphate or to, you know, indicate that they're the true leader of the, of the Arab uh, or Muslim world. Muslim in the case of Iran, of course, but but um, inside of the kind of conflict you see now with Turkey also expanding its ambitions in the Middle East, that's, you know, about this question of who's the real leader in that region. And it's been going on for a very long time, and there still isn't really an answer. And it's a good question. You know, we, we've certainly taken a side in the sense that, you know, I think American perception of Saudi Arabia is much more positive. We know that Saudi Arabia practices a lot of checkbook diplomacy that keeps them in everybody's good graces. Meanwhile, Iran is forever to Western eyes, the problem place. But that from their perspective, it wouldn't look like that at all. Right. And, um, you know, is the form of Islam that is practiced and exported by Saudi Arabia really doing anything too terribly positive for American foreign policy, it would be hard for anybody to look at that subject seriously and conclude that it is. Um, So all of these things are a little more muddled than they appear at first blush. Yeah, and what's interesting about that too is that, you know, if, if you take American values seriously, that means that you also take religious freedom seriously. And how does that apply to our relationships with other countries, regardless of outcome for foreign policy? Of course, America has never behaved in accordance with its values in that particular sense. But you still have to think about it. Yeah, I mean, we, we're not consistent about it, right? We, we turn a blind eye when it's in our national interest, however we choose to define it at the time. Yes, and with unknown consequences. Right. <laughs> but, you know, on the flip side, when we tried, when when poor, hapless, lovable Jimmy Carter tried as best he could to keep American commitment to our values and infuse them in our foreign policy and our foreign aid policy, it turned out to be a mess. And you just realize there are a lot of shades of gray in the world. See, I feel like that might actually be a really good game. Something where you're trying to balance actual political advantage with values that you have? That would be an extremely interesting game, and we could make every American into a moral relativist eventually. 
Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> and in in the area of politics, so there are games about politics. I know there's one about gerrymandering. You know, you've done some about campaigns. Are there any other? aspects of American politics that we could successfully and thoughtfully mine in board game form that might be both interesting and fun and instructive? Yeah, there's a, there's a ton. I mean, in general, I have felt like um, the difficulty with the wargaming hobby is that it ossified um, the simulation of history and American history into just kind of a battlefield context where a lot of the interesting history happens off the battlefield and the the battlefield is just a consequence of the earlier decision-making. So I'm happy to say that I see more and more of it turning up, right? So we've got two really interesting games um, that have come out about uh, the... Uh, about women getting the right to vote uh, here in the United States. I do think we have not really explored, although it's starting to be explored, the uh, games about courtroom simulation. I'm, I'm working with a designer right now and she's, uh, she's got a very interesting game design about the history of the Supreme court and the evolution of its thinking and how the different cases um, change the composition of the court. Um, We don't have anything on that. There is literally not ever been a serious, interesting game on the Congress on how we go about passing bills, either house. Um, So that all by itself is kind of like a gaping hole that, that could use some uh, rectification. There is, uh, there are some international games that are pretty good about this. Uh, Democker is an interesting simulation on German politics that uh, looks at uh, the German legislature uh, and how they go, uh, how it is composed by these regional elections and how public sentiment influences legislation that's passed. But, but we don't have anything similar for the United States. I guess one of my questions is, could we have anything similar for the United States? I feel like right now we're, we're in a situation where part of our country is living in one reality and another part is living in a different reality. And also, you know, one of the, the battle cries of keeping wargaming the way it is, is to say, get politics out of my games. I just want to play a game. Is that ever, first of all, I don't, I'm not really sure that's ever impossible, but <laughs> But, you know, do we have space in our hobby right now for a big push in this direction? So I think that's interesting, but I do think that that um, it relies on two things. It relies on a changing um, audience for historical gaming that I think is there. And the reason I think it's there is, well... A long time ago, I had a conversation with, um, he's a noted reviewer in England, and we were having this back and forth, actually, it was not very long after Twilight Struggle had come out, but he he was a famous early reviewer of Euros, and he'd gone through this phase where he just dropped out of gaming because he felt like he'd seen everything 
that Euros had to offer, and he was burnt out, and he just went dark. Um, and then he came back, and one of the things that excited him was he felt like there was this evolving school of design that he called uh, Atlantic-style design. And the idea was that you would marry Euro mechanics and sensibility with the American and English um, desire for narrative. And one of the places where I think narrative is clearest in American game design is in historical simulations where, you know, you've got a beginning and a middle and an end. You're kind of telling uh, an actual story as best you can through game mechanics. And I, I think that what we're slowly seeing thanks to um, more accessible game design in the historical arena is an audience of some of those Euro gamers who are like curious and they, they come over and then they try some things and they play their first GMT game. And then they buy, they buy a couple of coin games. And then all of a sudden they're part of this part of the hobby. And why I think that's good is um, there was a core of the hobby that kind of comes out of an engineering school, uh, a, a a group of people who weren't too fond of politics to begin with and who like right answers. And uh, of course, politics doesn't have anything to do with correct answers. And <laughs> so they find that approach to um, wargaming annoying. But um, I guess I'd be here to tell them that that's actually what warfare is about. But, you know, they don't have to listen to me. Indeed not. But hopefully everyone else has enjoyed listening to you. I'll throw you a softball question really quick, which is, what are you playing right now? What are you enjoying? Uh, I've been playing a lot of light stuff. I'm always playing a lot of light stuff with my kids, so that is not that surprising. Um, I really was uh, surprised how much I enjoyed... Um, uh, hold on, let me see. I'll find it on my shelf. We really liked uh, Foothills, which is a, kind of a train game about whales. Um, I've been playing a fair amount of Blitzkrieg with my son, which is a very light uh, kind of strategic level game on World War II. And um, I was surprised that I liked The Haunted Mansion, which is kind of a Disney port um, Euro. Aw, that's cute. <laughs> And uh, do you have anything that you're designing that's in the pipeline that you can tell us about? Any scoop? Um, I've got two things that I'm working on actively right the second. The first is that I'm doing an introductory Twilight Struggle called Twilight Struggle Red Sea. And it's a game about um, towards the end of the Cold War, there was a major conflict in the Horn of Africa between uh, Ethiopia and Somalia. And um, I did not include it in the original Twilight Struggle. So it's been something that's nagging at me for a long time to fix. And so I'm fixing it by doing a short uh, lunchtime series game on that part of uh, the Cold War. So it uh, will be an introductory game that will let people try, or try out and learn the Twilight Struggle system without committing to a whole game. And you can be done with the whole experience in 30, 30 to 45 minutes. 
Ooh, nice. And then the second game that I'm working on is with Fort Circle Games. It's um, a a game that takes the card-driven system over into a courtroom setting, and it's about the treason trial of Aaron Burr um, for attempting to dismember the United States. Ooh. Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, I'm I think excited. it'll be... I, I'm excited about it. That's awesome. All right. Well, where can we find you on the internet if people want to pepper you with questions, annoy you? So I am pretty much available through all the regular media sources. I'm on Twitter as uh, Jason DC Matthews. Uh, I'm also on Board Game Geek, uh, cleverly hidden as Jason Matthews. And I'm on Facebook as Jason Matthews. Uh, and uh, my icon is uh, kind of a souped up version of Twilight Struggle. Fantastic. And as y'all know, who are listening, I am everywhere as Beyond Solitaire. Thank you so much, Jason. It's been awesome to get to talk to you. My pleasure, Liz. Thank you for having me on. Happy gaming, everyone.